great to be in uh, Albuquerque and here at Hoffmantown Baptist Church. And I've been watching some of your services on the website, and they've been very exciting and wonderful. And uh, I have loved the music today. When I went to uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, there was a Sunday that I didn't have a preaching responsibility, and I went to the church there on the campus of the seminary. And uh, I was just about late, and there were some ushers that escorted me down the aisle, and I slid into the second pew and had to move across several knees in order to find my seat, and I sat down, and lo and behold, uh, I looked in the bulletin, and I noticed that my professor of systematic theology was preaching that Sunday morning, and I didn't mean to do it, but just out of my mouth came the words, oh, no. And I felt like I owed somebody an explanation, so I turned to the lady next to me and I said, I see that Dr. Robinson is preaching here this morning. I have him for systematic theology, and I've got to tell you, he's the most boring professor in the whole seminary. And she looked at me and she said, do you know who I am? And I said, no, ma'am, I don't know who you are. She said, I'm Dr. I'm, I'm Mrs. Robinson. I said, well, Mrs. Robinson, do you know who I am? And she said, no, I don't. I said, well, praise God. <laughs> and I didn't tell her either. And I mean, as soon as that service was over, I was out of there. I didn't say, hello, how do you do? Goodbye to anybody. I was gone. So I know that you have not had boring preachers here, and we'll try to make the message this morning as interesting and as compelling as we possibly can. And I want you to turn, first of all, if you will, to John chapter 11 as we think this morning about the raising of Lazarus. And then there's also a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So put one finger in John 11 and another finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What I want to do this morning is to try to harmonize these two passages of Scripture. Now, in John chapter 11, we have the story of Jesus Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. Just a little background information. Jesus was a very dear friend of Lazarus who lived with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus often frequented their home. When he received word that Lazarus was sick, the Bible says that he remained two days in the same place where he was, and so he was delayed in getting to Bethany where they lived. And by the time he finally got there, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Now we're going to break into this narrative in verse 38 where Jesus is standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus. So listen to what he has to say here in John chapter 11, verse 38. If you don't mind and if you're willing, let me ask you to stand up in honor of the reading of God's precious and perfect word. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew 
that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had been dead came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'd like for us to begin reading in verse 14, and there are three terms, three words I want you to remember or underline. So if you have um, pen or pencil or uh, magic marker or mascara, you can do that. All right, verse 14, but the natural man, there's the first word, natural, natural man, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual, there's the second word, the spiritual man, but he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Continue in chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual people, but as unto carnal. There's the third term. As babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. For ye are still carnal. And we're going to stop right there. So let's remember these three terms in this order. The natural man, the carnal man, and the spiritual man. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for this wonderful church. I pray your blessings upon the ministry of this fellowship. And ask, dear Savior, that you might pave the destiny of this church with your goodness and with your grace and with your power. And Lord, this morning as we focus upon these verses of Scripture, we would pray that you would do anything in us that you need to do, that you might be able to do everything through us that you want to do. I pray for your divine anointing, and I pray that you give to the church ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. So far as we know, there are three people that Jesus raised from the dead. First of all, there was the daughter of Jairus. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. And he came to Jesus and said, please come to my house. My daughter is sick. We need your help. We need your healing hand. And Jesus began to make his way toward the home of Jairus and on the way to his house, we know that he was interrupted at least on one occasion, maybe on several other occasions, because that was when he healed the woman with the issue of blood on the way to the house of Jairus. Unfortunately, by the time Jesus got there, the little girl had died. She could not have been dead very long. In fact, I can still envision the blush of, blush of life still being upon her cheeks. But the passage specifically states that she was dead. And yet Jesus raised her from the dead. Peter, James, and John were there to see the miracle along with the little girl's mother and father. 
So we have ample testimony that the little girl was raised from the dead, although she'd been dead just for a brief period of time. On another occasion, Jesus and his disciples were entering into the village of Nain. And the procession of life led by Jesus encountered a procession of death because the only son of a certain widow in the village of Nain had died. Presumably he died early that morning or during the night because in Israel in those days they liked to bury people the same day that they died when it was possible because they didn't have sophisticated means of embalming, for example, like the Egyptians. So we can, I think, rightly assume that he'd been dead for the better part of a day. And yet Jesus touched the coffin, and to the amazing surprise of the pallbearers, the young man sat up in the coffin. But now in the case of Lazarus, it's not a matter of someone being dead for an hour or less or the better part of a day. Lazarus had been dead four days. The demons of decay were doing their work. Decomposition had set in. There was a stench that came from the tomb. And Herbert Lockyer, a Bible commentator, says that this is undoubtedly the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. First of all, I want us to consider dead Lazarus. And I contend that dead Lazarus represents the natural man. Now the natural man is the lost man, the unsaved man, the unregenerate man. In the Bible, when Paul wrote Timothy, he said, She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she lives. And we know that when when Paul wrote the church at Ephesus, he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin." Jesus said in John chapter 5, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and has passed from death unto life. When the prodigal son returned from the far country, his father welcomed him, and when it came time to reintroduce him to the neighbors, the father said, This is my son who was lost and is found. He was dead and he is alive again. So in the Bible, it's pretty clear that those who are lost and without Christ are referred to as dead. Now let's think for just a moment about what are the characteristic of some, characteristics of someone who is dead. First of all, a dead person has no appetite. When Lazarus was alive, I'm sure that he had a hearty appetite. He had two sisters, and we know that one of them could cook. He often visited in their home, and it was Mary who came and sat at the feet of Jesus to listen to what he had to say because she was enthralled by his message and his ministry. Martha was in the kitchen rattling pots and pans, preparing dinner for that night. And to tell you the truth, I I like Martha. My wife is right here on the front row. Her name is Martha. And I like it when she's in the kitchen stirring up something for supper. And I believe that Lazarus enjoyed putting his feet under Martha's table. He enjoyed smelling the aroma that came from her kitchen. He was interested in the dinner menu. But you know something? Once he died, he had no appetite whatsoever. And the people in this world who are without Jesus Christ apparently do not have much of an appetite for the things of God. 
That's why we're to go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in because lost people aren't beating down the doors of churches to hear the gospel these days. And I don't know that they ever have because they don't have a hunger for the things of God. In fact, I've discovered that sometimes even people who come to church don't have a real hunger for spiritual things. Sometimes people come to church because it's good for their reputation or it's good for business or their spouse makes them come or they think it's just sort of good for their image. But I wonder how many people here this morning really have a hunger and a thirst for the things of God. Someone said, these hath God married and no man shall part dust on the Bible and death in the heart. Would to God that we could say with the psalmist, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you're here today and you don't have a real hunger and thirst for the things of God, it, it may be a sign of death, spiritual death. Here's another characteristic of death, not just no appetite, but no activity. When Lazarus was alive, I'm sure that he was a very active person. He may very well have been active physically. Who knows but that he was a jogger. He may have been in an aerobics class or a Zumba class or a Pilates class. But you know something? Once he died, he was no longer active physically. When he was alive, he may have been active socially. Every time there was a party, every time there was a tea, every time there was a reception, he was there. He may have been active financially. He knew where to get the best returns on his investments. He may have been a subscriber to the, Walling Wall Street, uh, uh, the, the, the Wailing Wall Street Journal, for all I know. But once he died, he was no longer active. He was lying in that tomb, stone cold dead. I started to say as dead as a government job at, job at 4 o'clock, but I decided not to say that. <laughs> but he was D-E-A-D, dead. No activity coming from him at all. In fact, rigor mortis had set in, and he was not active. And you know what I've discovered? I've discovered there are a lot of people who will come into the church, but they don't want to be involved in very many things, if anything. I was pastor of Eastside Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia. We had a man in our church there who had tickets to the Hawks, the Falcons, the Braves, and the Thrashers at that time, the hockey team that was in town. He coached a little league baseball team. He was in several civic clubs, but I could not get him to do one blessed thing in the church because he had no appetite for the sort of activity that is spiritual. And it's true that in so many cases, there are church members who just want to sit on the sidelines. They don't want to be involved. And I must tell you that a lack of involvement, a lack of activity in spiritual things is a sign of death. Here's another characteristic of death. Not only no appetite, not only no activity, but no, no real awareness. When... Lazarus was alive, I'm sure that he was aware of his surroundings. He would laugh at jokes. He would weep at funerals. He was aware of current events. He was conversant with the things that were happening in his community. But once he died, he was not aware of anything whatsoever. 
And did you know something? That lost people aren't aware of spiritual realities. In fact, in our text it says, The natural man understandeth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Have you ever tried to witness to a lost man and he just didn't get what you were saying? He's not lying to you. He's telling the truth. He can't quite comprehend it yet. And the Holy Spirit needs to work in his heart so he'll be receptive to the gospel. And even in the church, sometimes we're like the Capernaumites. Did you know that Jesus spent much of his earthly ministry in and around Capernaum. In fact, in Matthew 4.13, it says, Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. It was in Capernaum that he healed Peter's mother-in-law and the centurion's servant and the paralytic and the nobleman's son. It's where he called several of his disciples. It's where he gave his great discourse on the bread of life. Do you know what they did in Capernaum? They didn't kick him out of the city They basically did that in his hometown of Nazareth. They didn't crucify him like they did in Jerusalem. They just gave him the cold shoulder. They didn't seem to care about who he was. They were not aware that he was the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. So often in churches where I preach, it appears to me that there's some who are not really aware of spiritualities because we can sing great, uh, wonderful Christian anthems like the choir sang before I started preaching. And I tell you what, I I was sitting beside Brother Greg down here and I thought I was going to have a spell. It was wonderful. That doesn't move some people. People can come and give their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ and their lives are changed, but that doesn't move some people. They're more interested in getting front line in the cafeteria than they are seeing somebody saved. We're not aware of spiritual realities. And I must tell you that no appetite, no activity, and no awareness is a sign of death. Now, what does a dead man need? Well, first of all, let me tell you what he doesn't need. First of all, he does not need an education. Sometimes we think we can just educate people into the kingdom of God. But Adrian Rogers said, you educate a sinner and you just make out of him a clever devil. I mean, he may steal a pencil out of a drugstore, but if you educate him, he may rob a bank. So education doesn't work. I mean, let's say you uh, educate Lazarus. You, You get a doctor, a physician. And he goes and he says, now Lazarus, I'm going to explain to you all about the human body. And I'm going to talk to you about the endocrine system and the digestive system and the circulatory system and the uh, vascular system. I'm going to talk to you about the kidneys and the spleen and the lungs and the and the liver, and the pancreas. And once I give you this full education about physiology and anatomy, then you're going to be able to live. Is that what a dead man needs? No, he does not need an education. Somebody says, well, then what he needs is just a different environment. I mean, after all, you don't expect anybody to be anything but dead if they're lying in a cemetery. So let's get him out of the cemetery. Let's take him to a sports bar where there's a lot of lively music and crisp conversation and maybe those video games and food and drink and all that sort of thing and a lot of loud conversation and music. Is that what a dead man needs? No, he doesn't need to change his environment. The issue is not education. It's not environment. Somebody said, well, the issue is an example. What he needs is just an example. Okay, I'm an old guy. My wife and I sit down at supper and watch 
Walker, Texas Ranger. Chuck Norris, six-time world martial arts champion. Creator of the Total Life Gym. So we get Chuck Norris to go in there, and he says, now, all right. Uh, Lazarus, I'm going to give you an example of what life is all about. And he does some deep knee bends and push-ups and curls and sit-ups and jumping jacks. And he says, now there you have an example of life. Is that what a dead man needs? No. The issue is not an example. It's not an education. It's not an environment. Somebody says, well, (laughs) what he needs is just encouragement. So we get the cheerleaders from Bethany High School, and they come with their little short skirts and their pom-poms, and they go into the tomb. They said, all right, Lazarus, two bits, four bits, six bits, a dollar. Come on, Lazarus, stand up and holler. Is that going to help? No. A dead man needs one thing, and that's life. And life is in Jesus Christ. Here's a scene that's full of all kinds of dramatic possibilities because you've got life outside the tomb impersonated or impersonified by Jesus Christ. You've got death in the tomb represented by Lazarus. This this, this is a scene that's full of all kinds of dramatic possibilities. And Jesus is the life. In fact, in this same chapter, John 11, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. 1 John 5 says, and this is the record, that God has given to us eternal life and this life is in the Son. And whosoever has the Son has life. Whosoever has not the Son has not life. So here's Jesus representing life. There's Lazarus representing death. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. I believe that he had to specify Lazarus because he spoke with such authority if he had just said come forth. Every dead person in that cemetery would have come bursting forth out of the grave. But he says Lazarus come forth. And now every eye on that hillside is riveted on the dark entrance of that tomb. And all of a sudden they see a white form emerge. And Lazarus emerges like this. Because you see, in those days, they would wrap the deceased in long strands of linen cloth. His legs were bound together. His arms were bound to his side or maybe over his chest like this. He had a cloth over his face. I mean, he was bound up, tightly bound up. And when he came out of that grave, he looked more like an animated mummy than a human being. But he's not dead. Dead Lazarus represents the natural man or the lost man, but bound up Lazarus, defeated Lazarus, represents the carnal man. I have two definitions for carnality. Number one, a carnal man may be someone who has trusted Christ, but he or she has just not grown in their faith. They're still walking about in the swaddling clothes of an infantile faith. Maybe that's what you are. You've been a Christian for five years. But you haven't grown very much in your faith. Or maybe 10 years or 20 or 30 years and you're still a baby Christian. That's not the way it's supposed to be. What if a 
young woman here in Albuquerque gave birth to a child and the child weighed seven pounds and one ounce at birth but six months later that child still weighed seven pounds and one ounce and a year later still weighed seven pounds and one ounce and five years later that baby still weighed seven pounds and one ounce would say horror of horrors that is not the way it is supposed to be and that's not the way it's supposed to be for those of us who are Christians we're to grow in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord We're to mature in the faith. We're to read the Bible so that we understand God's word to us. We're to pray so that we have an intimate relationship with him. We're to share our faith so that it becomes second nature for us to tell others about what Christ has done in our lives. But if you're still a baby Christian, that signifies carnality. Another definition of carnality is Someone who has lapsed into a momentary season of sin. Now, please notice that I use the word lapsed, momentary, and season. Because I don't think that you can live a sinful life as a Christian and continue to live a sinful life day after day, week after week, month after month, and consider yourselves a Christian. In fact, I say this. A... A saved man will lapse into sin and loathe it. A lost man will leap into sin and love it. You see, if you are a Christian, you're not going to remain in sin very long because you won't be able to stand it. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, the Bible says that Whosoever is born of God does not continually, it's a perfect imperative, does not continually commit sin for God's seed remains in him and he cannot sin continually because he's born of God. In other words, if you are a Christian or you call yourself a Christian but you've been involved in some sin for a long period of time, you're a proverbial or perpetual liar. You're hooked on the internet to things you ought not to be watching. You have an adulterous relationship. Whatever it is, if you continue in that for very long, the Bible teaches that you're not really a Christian in the first place. Now, all of us who are Christians can sin. We can make mistakes. I was pastor of Colonial Heights Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi back in the 80s. For the whole decade of the 80s. We have three children. We have twin sons. And we also have a daughter who's married to our pastor, as a matter of fact. And uh, it was basketball season. Our sons played on a basketball team. And if they won this particular game, they qualified for the playoffs. And uh, we were there for the game on a Friday night. The, na- the game was coming down to the near end of the game. It was a close game. And there was a player on the other team who stole the ball. Now, John is number 34, our son John. Jerry's number 35. They're identical. Somebody said they look so much apart you can hardly tell them alike. <laughs> but anyway, they were playing uh, on this game, and the other player, the opposing player, stole the ball, was going down to his court for a layup, and John, who had four fouls on him, number 34, four fouls, went up to block the shot and hit the player's hand, and the referee blew the whistle. And turned to the scores table and says, that's a foul on. And John and Jerry swapped places. And Jerry, number 35, had his hand up. 
He only has two fouls on him. It's the most brilliant move I've ever seen in my life. And I said, yes. My wife elbows me and said, you hypocrite. How can you possibly endorse that kind of deceptive behavior? And the Holy Spirit used her to make me feel about that tall. I began to sheepishly look around. Lo and behold, the chairman of our deacons was two rows behind me. He had a son playing on the other team. My only salvation was that our team lost. But after that game, I went up to my deacon chairman. I said, I guess you saw me act like a fool. He said, yeah, I did. I said, well, I want you to know that I'm sorry. And that next Sunday morning, I apologized to the whole church because, you know, I realized that it's possible that somebody could have seen me do that and, and thought, well, you know, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want any part of it. Rick Warren said there are two reasons why lost people do not come to faith in Christ. Number one, they've never met a Christian. <laughs> Number two, they have met a Christian. Is it possible that somebody could have seen you at some point in time and concluded, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't need it. We need to live Christian lives every day in every way so that people can know that we're the children of God. But some of us don't do that. We try to live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. You know, that's kind of like a mermaid. A mermaid is too much woman to eat and too much fish to hug. You can't have it both ways. Heard about this little boy who had a Heinz 57 variety dog. I mean, it was just a mixed breed, but he heard they were having a dog show at the uh, city park on a Saturday morning, and he registered his mutt to be in the dog show. And on Saturday morning, they had a judge's reviewing stand, and these dogs came by. I mean, there was this absolutely beautifully groomed Irish setter. He was registered by the American Kennel Association. And then along came this beautifully manicured little French poodle. And the judges were ooing and eyeing. About that time came this stately Boston Terrier. And then along came this little guy with his mutt. And one of the judges said, wait a minute. What kind of a dog is that? And the little boy said, well, that's a German police dog. Judge just said, well, I don't look like a German police dog to us. Little boy said, that's because he's in the Secret Service. <laughs> listen, listen, if you are a Christian, don't you act like you're in the Secret Service. You live so everybody can know you're a child of God. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know... The thing that will put the lie in what I'm saying quicker than anything else is for you to go out and live like the devil. And the thing that will put the yay, the amen, the truth of God, the seal of God in what I'm saying faster than anything else is for you to go out and live like Jesus Christ. So don't be a carnal Christian. I don't want you to be dead. I don't want you to be defeated. But I want you to remember what Jesus said. He looked, at, uh, he looked at Lazarus, and I think he must have motioned for his disciples and said, loose him and let him go. They began to unwind, unwind those long strands of linen cloth, and it wasn't long until he could move his legs. The Bible says we've been raised up to walk in a newness of life. 
was not long until he could move his hands. The Bible says, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. They took the napkin over his face, not too long until he could talk. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now he is a walking, working, witnessing man. And now he's dangerous. Dangerous Lazarus represents the spiritual man. God wants you to be a spiritual person. He wants you to be a spirit-filled person. He wants you to walk with Jesus in such a way that everybody knows you're identified with him. That's so important for us. In fact, let me tell you why I say he's dangerous. Turn over to John chapter 12 for just a moment. John chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he, that's a capital H, that's Jesus, knew that Jesus was there, and they came for Jesus' sake They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. People were coming from all over the place to see Lazarus because he was a trophy of God's grace. Look at the next verse, verse 10. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death. I mean, this has got to be the meanest plot in all history. The poor guy just gotten himself raised from the dead, and now they're plotting to kill him again. Why? All right, look in verse, the next verse, verse 11. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. He's dangerous. Because now he's taking people away from a false religion to faith in Jesus Christ. He's dangerous. And you know, I want to be the devil's worst nightmare. I want to bring consternation to the camp of the devil, and I want to be a valiant soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, want, I don't want to be dead. I don't want to be defeated. I want to be dangerous. I'll tell this story, and I'll close. In 1968, I went to my first Southern Baptist Convention. It was in Houston, Texas. And, uh, I mean, I was, like, I was pastor of a small church on the east coast of North Carolina. And I was like a country boy come to town. I mean, in that big city of Houston. And the convention was being held in a place called the Music Hall, a huge building that covered an entire city block. And while uh, I was there, I came to the realization that the convention went all the way through Thursday night and that Billy Graham was going to be preaching on Thursday night. We just had our first child born to us a few months earlier, and I had planned to go back home on, on Thursday afternoon, which meant that I would miss Billy Graham. But I grew up in the hills of North Carolina, not too far from where Billy Graham lived and where he grew up. And so I called my wife and I said, honey, I, 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 Billy Graham is preaching tonight. And if I can change my flight schedule, if I can get another room in the hotel, would you mind if I stayed another night to hear Billy Graham? He's been my hero and I would just love to hear him preach in person. She said, I want to encourage you to do that. So I went to the hotel and I asked if I could get a room uh, for that night and they said, no, we're filled up, but you're first on a waiting list. If you get your bags down to the bell captain, he'll keep them for you. And it's very likely that we'll have a cancellation and we'll save that room for you. So I just kind of waited that afternoon and just a little bit before uh, 6 o'clock, they motioned to me and said, we have a room for you. So I got in there. I'd already changed my flight till the next morning. And they were going to have a musical presented by a thousand young people before the convention started, that was to start at 6 o'clock, and the musical was called Good News. 
So after I got checked back in my room, I, I rushed down to the music hall, and, and the musical had already started before the convention session started, but the place was filled up. Everybody came to hear Billy Graham. There were hundreds of people milling around outside, and they told me that I couldn't get in because the fire marshal said the building was already at capacity. But being the creative and ingenious person that I am, I decided I was going to walk around that building. Surely I could find a door or a window that I could get in. I checked every door, every nook, every cranny, and it was sealed as tight as a drum. I walked around twice, no entrance. And then I stood on the street corner and I said, oh, dear Lord, please let me in. You know the trouble that I've been to to stay for another night. I want to be able to hear Billy Graham. I don't care if I have to sit on the floor. I don't care if I have to stand up the whole service. Please let me in. I walked around another time, and when I got to the back, there were two metal double doors at the back that I'd already tried. I tried them again, and I was dressed in a suit and tie, but they wouldn't open for me, and I just stood there dejectedly. I knew that was my last chance. All of a sudden, there were three or four cars that drove up, In the passenger seat of the first car was Billy Graham. Leighton Ford, George Beverly Shea, Cliff Barris, T.W. Wilson, Grady Wilson, the whole Billy Graham team was there. And I just thought, well, I'm going to stand at this door. At least I'll get an up-close-and-personal look at Billy, Billy Graham. When he touched the door, it just opened up for him. And we all walked in. (laughs) I actually thought security thought I was with Billy Graham. I think the Billy Graham team must have thought I was with security. We walked down this long corridor, down another corridor, up some steps, through a curtain. Next thing I knew, I was on the platform of the Southern Baptist Convention. I was scared to death that somebody might see me. I didn't have one of those lanyards that permitted me to be on the platform. And so I just sat down and assumed the position of prayer. I didn't think anybody would tell me to leave if I was in the position of prayer. Well, the young people finished their marvelous concert. And then Cliff Bear sort of presided over that evening session. And we started singing some congregational songs. And I stood up and got a hymnal or a songbook. And standing right next to me was George Beverly Shea. George Beverly Shea died at 103 or 104 just a couple of years ago. He sang with Billy Graham's team for 60 years. He sort of, his, his I guess, signature song was, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. Here I was seated next to this man. I felt like I was in the presence of someone who was almost divine. Have you ever been in the presence of a man that just kind of reminded you of Jesus? That was my experience. Some of my friends were sitting down front saying, I don't know why in the world I was up there. (laughs) I felt like I was singing a duet with George Beverly Shea. The service progressed, and finally, Cliff Barris said, in just a moment, Dr. Graham will bring the message for this hour, but before he comes, I want to present to you America's beloved singer of gospel songs, George Beverly Shea, whereupon he turned to me and said, Brother, you pray for me. And he went to the platform, 
And he sang a simple hymn. The words were, earthly pleasures vainly call me. I would be like Jesus. Nothing worldly shall enthrall me. I would be like Jesus. Be like Jesus in the home. Be like Jesus in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus. When you get to that place, you'll become the spiritual person that God wants you to be. Let's pray. As you bow your heads in prayer, I'm going to give an invitation for those of you to come forward whose hearts have been touched by God's Holy Spirit. Some of you may be honest enough to consider that you are dead. You're without Christ. You may be a church member. You may have been baptized. But if the truth were honestly known, you've never fully given your heart to Christ. And today during the invitation, you would come and say, I want to be saved. I want to have Christ rule and reign in my heart. Some of you may be carnal. Perhaps you've not committed adultery or you've not been addicted to pornography or you've not committed any gross sin but perhaps like me you have kind of lost your cool at a basketball game and you'd just like to come to this altar and kneel down and say God I'm not satisfied being a carnal Christian I want to be a spirit filled Christian God can change a city with a handful of people who are truly committed to Christ and who are filled with His Spirit. So I would hope and pray that maybe many of you would just come and kneel down and say, God, we're in a transition time in the life of our church. We're going to be seeking for a new pastor. Dear Lord, I'd like for a new pastor to come to a church that's already in revival and renewal. And I want to be a catalyst to make that happen. Some of you may just want to come and pray for God's guidance in the days and months ahead. Father in heaven, I pray right now that you'd speak to our hearts. Speak to our hearts that our very souls may hear. Do a new work in us today. Lord, may this even be a defining moment in the life of the church as people surrender totally to you. Father, we know that we need today surrendered saints to change this world for the cause of Christ. May we be willing to say, earthly pleasures vainly call me. I would be like Jesus. Nothing worldly shall enthrall me. I would be like Jesus. Be like Jesus in the home. Be like Jesus in the throne be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus. Lord, may that be the may that be the ringing anthem of our hearts. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Look this way just a moment. I'm going to have some of the pastors to stand here. They're already here. You may want to come and speak to them and tell them that you're trusting Christ as your savior. You may want to come and just ask them to pray with you. You may want to come and tell them you'd like to be a part of this wonderful fellowship. You may want to just come and kneel and pray. When you stand, I'm not going to just ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to stand and come to this altar 
and the demonstration of your desire to be a surrendered saint and to heed God's call in your life in this moment. Let's stand together. You come right now as we sing. Jesus, I oh, don't wait. Say yes to Him. God doesn't want you to be dead. He doesn't want you to be defeated. He wants you to be dangerous. A dangerous Christian. Amen. You come. God's speaking to your heart. Let Him have His way in your life. Father in heaven, you've seen those who've come to the altar. I pray that you'd bless them. I pray that you'd give to them your well done. I pray that you'd do a new work in their hearts and the hearts of those who may have made commitments in the seats. May this be a new day for this great church. Lord, use it to impact this community and be an influence beyond anything that any of us could imagine. I pray, Father, that your hand of blessing and power will be upon these people and this church for the days to come. May you be glorified in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.